Venture capital funding for clean energy technology companies has declined in recent years, but one new fund is looking to buck that trend. Dan Goldman is the co-founder and managing director of Clean Energy Ventures, and he is trying to be a catalyst and change the narrative by providing those companies with the resources they need to make long-lasting positive impacts. Dan joined IT Visionaries to discuss the process Clean Energy Ventures goes through when selecting new companies, and he explains what differentiates Clean Energy Ventures from other VCs, and he looks into his crystal ball at the future of the clean energy industry. Enjoy this episode. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce Customer 360 platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experience, empower every employee, and deliver continuous innovation with the customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com platform. This podcast is created by the team at mission.org. Welcome to another episode of IT Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, host of IT Visionaries. And today we have special guest, Dan, what's going on? Not much. How are you, Ian? Great to be on your show. Um, I'm honored. Thanks for stopping by. Um, we are going to get into clean tech energy space where uh, Clean Energy Ventures currently is. We're going to do a little bit of your background. So let's get into it. How did you get started in technology? Great question. So I, I guess I came to technology through energy first and uh, really kind of discovered a, a liking for energy in college when I was at Cornell um, studying mostly applied economics. And after school, I, um, I started working for a consulting firm called Arthur D. Little, which did technology and management consulting. It was a 100-year-old firm, and uh, we did just that. But the interesting thing is I, I did it in the old energy economy, as we would describe it now, which was oil and gas. So I, I really came up through energy and eventually technology through the traditional means of initially consulting and uh, developing energy infrastructure around the world, spent six years in Asia, and then came to clean energy in the early 2000s when I discovered that you know the way we developed energy infrastructure for power plants and pipelines and everything in the old energy economy could really be applied to clean energy. And um, so we started a private equity fund to develop clean energy projects. And then I, I sort of came full circle and went back to technology from where I started my career and joined a technology development company and then also started a group called Clean Energy Venture Group which was the predecessor to the fund. So flash forward to today, tell me a little bit about the organization. Sure. So what we've got today is $110 million early stage focused clean energy venture fund. We invest in early stage technologies, business model innovations that can both grow to scale and be profitable businesses in their own right but also address climate change. So reduce greenhouse gas emissions as a equally important goal to uh, the companies having financial success. And quite frankly, we've always felt that the two are interrelated because if you want to address climate change, you need to have successful and profitable companies that can grow to scale. Otherwise, you can't have the impact on, on the climate. So we see those things as integrally linked. And how we came to this was. Um, Back in uh, about 2005, four of us started uh, investing in each other's companies. 
we sat around and discussed what was happening in clean energy, which was the market at the time. And ultimately, we started looking at new technologies that were coming out of universities, coming out of labs, coming out of incubators. We started making really small investments in those companies and spending a lot of time mentoring and monitoring and helping the founders. And as we started doing that, we had more people with really, really great energy experience come to us and want to join the group. And so we started curating a group that today, all with really, really deep energy experience, really significant startup, board governance experience. And out of that group, three of us formed a, a separate fund. And the reason we did that was, you know, over the last three to five years, we saw a clean energy opportunity that was growing very large. And uh, the group itself really didn't have the financial wherewithal to address the size of that opportunity. And so by forming a, a fund, $110 million, we can make more investments, we can make larger investments, follow on those investments in later rounds, really have more impact in terms of uh, addressing climate and addressing sustainability. So that was really the, the journey from you know, the development of Clean Energy Venture Group, which was effectively an angel group, to forming the fund. You know, I'm curious, like as you were having those conversations going from angels to to larger, you know, I'd imagine whether it's family offices or corporations or things like that, like I'm curious, like what were those conversations like? What was the appetite like for this? Because it seems so kind of obvious now that there should be you know, significant capital being invested in clean energy. But I'm curious if at the time it, you, you met any resistance. That's, it's a great question. And, and so three or four years ago, we started considering raising this fund. We thought we needed to have a couple things under our belt. One was we had to have experience in the sector and the three of us who run the fund do. We spent almost a decade investing in early stage clean energy companies. Second thing we needed to have was a track record. And um, luckily, we had had a few exits from our portfolio, and we had a portfolio that was performing quite well at the time and is still performing well. And then the third piece was a sort of a differentiated strategy of how we were going to invest. And that differentiated strategy was really focused on leveraging our expertise, leveraging our network in the industry, having done this for a while. Um, we found that they really liked that strategy. They wanted to be involved. Um, they wanted to add their input, and especially the strategic investors we have in the fund, which include both electricity, utility, electric utilities, oil and gas companies, major conglomerate, international conglomerates, banks from different countries, and of course, the usual slate of institutional investors, registered financial advisors, and family offices. To a T, all of these people loved the strategy. Some of them were concerned about the historical performance of this sector, which had a very tough financial return over the 2006 to 2011 period. And what we explained is why the road signs that pointed to a much different future than what we had in the past. And I liken it to kind of the first internet bubble in the the, the mid to mid 1990s, which ended badly in 2000. And then the second internet bubble. The first one was really business models that didn't uh, work out that well. The second one was really very compelling opportunities that had revenue models 
and can grow to scale and be profitable. And that's what we have right now. We have uh, an investment portfolio that has tremendous promise and um, in very exciting areas that need to be disrupted. So you talked about it a little bit, but there's kind of that moment in time with clean energy where it seemed like there's a lot of technologies converging that all needed to be kind of created in order for clean energy to be to be more profitable, to be a better business model, um, kind of similar to software like you had like you had mentioned a little bit, where the price to actually building a profitable clean energy company seems like it might be more attainable now than it was in the past. Is that like how are you investing? How are you looking at you know companies trying to build in this way? Because you know a lot of times the adage of you know shipping a prototype and uh, and getting out an MVP isn't going to work for certain types of uh, products and services. Right. Yeah. So. I mean, we have some pretty strict criteria. I mean, we see hundreds of companies every month, thousands over the course of the year. And what we really are looking for is companies that have a competitive advantage, a sustainable competitive advantage in the market. Um, that might come through intellectual property that they own, or it might be through some business model innovation. They really have to demonstrate how they will disrupt a market, either with a product service offering that's differentiated, um, has a value proposition for a user, or a lower cost point, which is is going to you know kind of disrupt something like solar wafers, or an efficiency improvement, which effectively translates into a cost improvement. So those are really really important for us to see in a technology. And the other piece of it is, you know, we need to see things that can reach market adoption relatively quickly. So as you point out, I think in the past, we've seen technologies that took 5, 10, 15 years to scale. That's not something we can invest in. It's, you know, we have a pretty strict rule of we won't invest in anything that requires more than 30 or $40 million of total capital to get to um, profitability. And the reason is that, you know, if it's going to take 15 years, it's probably not the right opportunity for a venture firm. It might be the right opportunity for a national lab. It might be the right opportunity for a big oil company um, who can help a technology mature over a longer period of time and take that risk. But it's probably not the opportunity for us. And so when we look across our existing portfolio of eight companies that we've invested in, most of them are technologies that are either on the cusp of being adopted in the market or they already have some early market traction and our capital is really geared toward helping them develop a generation two technology or take their generation one and scale it up quickly. And a lot of times we end up investing in these companies with strategic partners as well. So we like to invest with energy companies, utilities, materials companies, because they represent, you know, really, really good understanding of the markets they participate in. And they, they ultimately can become partners and long-term acquirers of our companies. Um, so we don't typically give them special rights or our companies don't typically give them special rights, but just having them at, at the table and having them provide their experience and advice to our companies, we think is a very positive thing. So that sustainable competitive advantage, though, is um, whether you're looking at software, hardware, you know, new um, cold chain uh, technology, 
new transmission line monitoring technology. Those are the most important thing. We have to be convinced that a company does have that sustainable competitive advantage in order to move forward, diligence it, and and, uh, make an investment. Can you talk a little bit about the type of investments uh, that you've made? Like, what are the what is the impact that these companies are having? Yeah, so maybe I'll talk about one company um, called Spark Meter, and, and this is actually interesting because we've never really invested in anything that was had a product service offering geared toward emerging markets. But when we saw Spark Meter, we really liked the fact that what they were tackling was a market with effectively 1 billion people without any access to electricity and another billion people with very limited access. And what SparkMeter does is, they, they, so they produce a, a metering technology that works really, really well in low bandwidth environments. So band, bandwidth meaning like cellular service and maybe infrequent cellular service. And their customers are typically microgrid developers who are filling a huge gap in uh, sub-Saharan Africa and Asia where utilities are mostly insolvent and don't have the wherewithal to develop and extend the grid. So microgrid developers come in there, they'll build a solar plus storage system, and they'll hook up a village or multiple villages, and um, they'll provide reliable power for a period of the day. And uh, that is, uh, you know, a very large-scale opportunity. It's one that has a lot of support from development finance institutions and, and as well as the private sector. And it's obviously a very, very large market. So SparkMeter's metering platform combined with a cloud-based software service allows the microgrid developers to effectively manage their customers. And no one was really doing this until SparkMeter came along. And the benefit that they provide to the microgrid developers is they can really manage the customers, which is, is critical in a distributed model. But the even more interesting part of this, um, this story is that they started seeing central grid distribution utilities come to them who have hundreds of thousands of unmetered customers. And to their surprise, the distribution utility said, look, we need to start metering our customers so that we can collect the revenue for the power we supply them. And Spark Meter's solution with a prepay meter is exactly what distribution utilities need. And then they can monitor it in the same way through a software as a service platform. And the really interesting thing about the distribution utility side of it, though, is that the distribution utilities don't have good grid monitoring software. So by putting all these meters in, SparkMeter can collect a huge amount of data about what's happening at the grid edge, what's happening in their distribution system. And they can report to the utility whether they need more load in one place or another, or they have a voltage surge in one place or another. So they're giving a huge amount of information by metering these customers back to the utility to help them them to operate the grid more effectively. We loved this opportunity. They had an actual property. They have a huge market opportunity. And they had customers. And um, the story was, we need to grow our microgrid customers and we need to get into the distribution utility market. And so we co-led around with Breakthrough Energy Ventures and Total Energy Ventures. And uh, we're very excited with the, the progress they've made so far. Yeah, it's a pretty incredible story. And it's the type of story that, you know, it's a very venture story, right? It's like 
clearly they need to have, you know, risk capital to the equation, right? It's just too hard to figure out, you know, how to bootstrap uh, a company like that. And they also need not just the money, but like the guidance, the expertise from you and your team that have been working, you know, and looking at problems, you know, adjacent problems for, uh, you know, for a decade plus, I'd imagine. Yes. And I I think to kind of the broader point, that's a really important part of our strategy, which is to spend a lot of time with the management teams, uh, helping them develop whatever strategy they are looking for at the time. It could be intellectual property strategy. It could be how do you effectively go to market, what pricing structures work best, or it, you know, it can be uh, more engineering and operations related. So we are very much of the frame of mind that early stage companies need a lot of support. And um, you know, there have been studies by Kauffman Foundation and others that show that technology companies that um, are well supported with an ecosystem and with investors uh, perform better. And so that's, that's something we really believe in. So when you're looking at these type of investments, you know, we always talk about kind of like the moonshot investments um, for a lot of VCs. It seems like a lot of these have kind of an incremental feel to them where it's like, you can make things, you know, X percent better, whether it's, you know, heating and cooling, whether it's, you know, grids, things like that. But a lot of it is is so technology driven, not just with the creation of like new technologies, but just the software layer, as you had mentioned, where we just need to know, like we need to have data around these things, because if we don't have any data, then we can't, you know, accurately, uh, predict or forecast or figure out like what is kind of the ground truth? Do you feel like there's a lot of just uncertainty around clean energy and therefore like we just don't have the the raw information necessary? I think that is a big problem. This is such a different market than I think many of your guests probably come from where in the tech market, data is you know almost ubiquitous these days um, on the internet. But in the energy markets, data is quite heavily protected, and there have not been the sensors and um, systems in place to really monitor and report. So data is 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 looked upon as a critical resource today among many of the companies we're looking at. And, you know, whether it's a moonshot or, you know, an incremental change, I think we're looking for things that can disrupt markets. So I consider them to be moonshots. Um, we're not necessarily creating an entirely new market, but we're disrupting a market in such a way that, you know, hopefully has never been seen before. And that results in highly scalable technologies being implemented across many different sectors. So we definitely have the goal of building large technology companies. And I think we see in many of those instances, data as, as a critical piece to that, certainly in the spark meter case in sub-Saharan Africa, they don't have the data on how the grid is operating. But even here, if you think about all of the distributed energy resources, whether it's rooftop solar on homes, whether it's EV charging, whether it's storage systems, these are going in homes at an ever-increasing pace. And utilities are sitting there saying, well, 
I have a meter, but I can't collect the data on what's happening at that quote unquote grid edge. I don't know how many houses have solar. I don't really have an aggregated load profile in a given community. And so how am I going to manage the grid in the way I've been doing it historically, where I had central power generation wires from those generating sources going to homes? Now you have production at the edge of the grid. And so it's a whole new model that utilities need to figure out, and they need data to um, basically help them understand how to operate the grid with the same reliability that they were doing in an old grid model of, of generation, transmission, distribution use. Now we have generation all over the place throughout the value chain, whether it's at the commercial industrial level or at the residential level. And utilities need to adapt to that new model. And so we have a company called Connector, which has a, a very interesting meter collar they put on a utility meter. And on that basis, they can supply data back to the utility that helps them understand what's going on at the grid edge. Yeah. And so, and I guess I was saying, yeah, not that, not that they weren't moonshot or not that you're not looking for moonshots, but yeah, it's like the type of disruption is just a little different, right? And those certain, you know, products that, you know, in the, in the case that you were talking about, or, you know, in sub-Saharan Africa, taking people from offline to online uh, from an electricity standpoint is hugely impactful and important work. Although it doesn't seem like, you know, at the outset, it's like something new was created, right? It's not like a new, uh, necessarily like, you know, a new type of, of way things are done. It's a different way things are done at massive amounts of scale. And it's places where it's really needed. And, you know, one of the big things that we, we talked about a lot with sustainability was just how you have kind of the compounding effects when, you know, if you plant one tree, it's like the carbon footprint is like over time is like massive to just to plant one tree, uh, you know, reduces carbon, carbon footprint. And I think that like all of these solutions end up having such a massive impact over time. You know, I know you've talked in the past about looking at things in terms of gigatons. What are you looking at in terms of like the scale and the impact that you want these companies to have long term? Yeah. So maybe in order to answer that question, I'll use another company as an example. Um, so we have a company called Boston Materials, which was started by two North, Northeastern grad students licensing technology out of, out of Northeastern and out of the Swiss University. And what they figured out was, um, you know, carbon fiber composites, which are now used in almost everything, um, whether it's airplanes, cars, pressure vessels, and also consumer products like cross sticks and sailboats and bicycles and a lot of other products. Uh, what they figured out was that, you know, we have to layer up the carbon fiber composite to make it strong in all directions. But if you could use something to control the direction of those carbon fiber composite materials and allow you to refine what direction they're going in, then you wouldn't necessarily need, you know, 10 layers of carbon fiber composite. You could reduce it to one or two layers and put uh, a laminate in with the aligned fibers. So figure this out. And when you think about the applications of this, all of a sudden, you're lightweighting planes, you're reducing the weight of, of vehicles, of trucks, 
of pressure vessels, um, which might be in many vehicles as well as, uh, you know, compressed natural gas, uh, hydrogen, various other things. And most importantly, they're also using recycled carbon fiber composite materials to do this. So we looked at this and we said, well, globally, if, if you can get into airplanes and automotive, you are having such an incredible impact in terms of gigatons of, of reduction of carbon, especially given how long planes and automotive uh, automobiles are on the road. This is a really, really large opportunity. So that's one where, you know, again, it's a disruption to an existing market. Carbon fiber composites have been around for a long time now. But if you can disrupt that, that value chain with big partners like automotive and aerospace companies, you know, you can build a, a very significant opportunity. I, I think we think about something like that as, you know, somewhat like a unique commodity that can be used in so many different things. The, the market opportunity is so large. It's, it's a very, very compelling opportunity. And likewise, you know, we have a solar wafer technology company called Heating Edge, which uh, radically reduces the wafer production costs. Wafers go into cells, which go into modules, which go into panels. And if you can reduce the wafer costs by some 50%, then that has a, a material impact on overall solar costs, also improves the efficiency. And again, we're talking about a really, really large market opportunity for solar wafers. That's incredible. Any other, any other story? I mean, geez, you could probably go all day. These are great. Well, yeah, there's another sector, which I think is, you mentioned sustainability in the, in the beginning. And I think we think about climate change, obviously, as one of the most important areas of sustainability uh, that needs to be addressed. But there's so many other areas. I mean, there's a, uh, sustainability encompasses a much wider thing than just climate change. And many companies, especially Fortune 500 companies, are focused on ESG, environmental social governance issues. So environmental side is, is carbon, but other things as well, other pollutants, water and ground pollutants. And so we are seeing an increasing number of Fortune 500 companies who say, I need to measure my carbon footprint. I need to understand my sustainability goals, whether they're being met or they're not being met. How do I do that? How do I verify? How do I audit whether my facilities are using renewable energy or they're getting just, you know, the average uh, brown energy from the grid? And people, you know, within sectors like real estate, within financial services, large tech companies, Amazon to Facebook to Google are all getting very sophisticated about how they measure their carbon footprint. And it's a very hard thing to do without a sophisticated platform. And so we're, you know, looking at a company now that has very differentiated technology to help Fortune 500 companies measure their carbon footprint and other sustainability parameters so that it's auditable, it's uh, verified and they can report on it. And one of the reasons that's becoming more important is because we're seeing states and cities pass legislation requiring, you know, in the case of, let's just say, as an example, New York City, uh, requiring anyone who owns real estate there to meet a very stringent uh, requirement of reducing their carbon footprint by 40% over the next uh, 
uh, roughly 10 years. And if they fail to do that, they're subject to very, very significant fines. So in that context, real estate companies are asking themselves, how am I going to figure out whether I've even reduced my carbon footprint by 40%? I don't have that data. I don't know if the data I even have is, is accurate. Um, so this is a platform that is addressing corporate responsibility, corporate sustainability focus, which we expect, you know, will by necessity grow in the coming years, partially as a result of city and state legislation, maybe federal legislation, but also because of financial reporting as well. Shareholders are demanding this. Yeah. How much do you think like outside pressure is going to put you know, on the industry? Because, you know, I know for interest in, in investing in your fund, there was a ton of interest in that. I think people want to be part of the solution. But, you know, as we've talked about on the show before, people just don't know where to plug in. They don't know where they can support. They don't know where their company can support. Obviously, you know, uh, investing in a fund like yours is one way to do that, but I'm just curious. Yes, I think, I think it's a really challenging market because um, there's not an enormous amount of transparency to plug in as a corporate and say, oh, I'll just invest in this or I'll just invest in that. And of course, the risk profile of corporates is by necessity, they're quite risk averse. And so it takes them a long time to get comfortable with where their risk appetite pits with a particular type of investment. We're seeing, you know, lots of announcements um, today. Amazon announcing a two billion dollar venture fund that's in a, on on top of their ten billion dollar commitment to reach their 2030 carbon neutral goal. I believe it's 2030. So, you know, and and we have other large corporates who have announced funds as well. So, I think right now we're at the embryonic stage of a kind of a clean energy market. And it's getting better, but I think it's very challenging for corporates to figure out how to plug into this space. Many corporates are more aligned with investing in assets. So if they want to purchase wind power or solar, they can invest in, in an asset. And that's a little bit easier of a risk profile for them to understand. But I think by necessity, we need more capital flowing into the technology side because unless we can bring innovative technologies to market, it's going to be very, very challenging to meet the climate objectives that need to be met you know, immediately, as soon as possible, because we're, we're way behind in our ability to, to address the climate crisis, to address the greenhouse gas emissions that will be in the atmosphere by 2050. Um, and so, you know, there's, there's not only more interest in, in addressing that issue, but now there's also a whole other category of resilience to do something about the fact that we're not going to be living in the same sort of world in 20 or 30 years that we see today. Therefore, we're going to need to take action to build res resilience into all of our infrastructure. So I think, you know, there's there's two ways corporates are looking at it. I, I've been very surprised at um, if you look at incubators and accelerators like Greentown Labs, which we have in the greater Boston area, the types of corporates that are coming to the table there and are interested in clean energy. It's quite a broad spectrum from State Street to chemical companies to oil companies to consumer product companies like Unilever. And they're all interested in engaging 
with clean energy technologies that can help them address problems. So what do you think is kind of next for the startup ecosystem? You know, for those entrepreneurs that are out there trying to figure out problems that are trying to like work on problems like this, or people who just want to plug into companies like your portfolio company, like, do you think that there's going to be a wave of, of more clean tech startups coming? I mean, obviously, you know, here's the hoping, but, um, but yeah, what do you think that the, the actual startup ecosystem is like? I think there will. I, I mean, if we look back and we have a long trend line of, of history going back to the early 2000s, and, and we just look at you know, the quality of the companies and the number of companies we're seeing now versus, you know, 15 years ago, it's quite dramatic. And um, I think there are a couple of things that are happening that make it much easier to start a company and to progress through those um, early, you know, sort of challenging pilot and and kind of lab and, and pilot demonstration stages. And some of those are just the fact that there is a better ecosystem in many places across the world. Um, There's a lot of financial support from corporates supporting that ecosystem. And then there there are just better tools and techniques for um, advancing your technology. So that could be like rapid prototyping facilities where you can you can make something you know literally overnight through a 3d printer as opposed to sending it out to a shop and waiting three months to get it back so there's a whole range of I think technology development tools that are helping entrepreneurs bring things to market faster and you know obviously the challenge right now is being able to do things like that during a global pandemic we're seeing some some very innovative um, approaches that our portfolio companies are taking. So it's really good to see the ingenuity there. And then the other thing I would say is I think there's going to be a really radical change in how companies approach both diversity, equity, and, and inclusion in their companies. I think there's an entire market that has has sort of been excluded from the clean energy ecosystem partially because of awareness, partially because the clean energy ecosystem really hasn't reached out. It's, a, it's, it's quite a, a white male ecosystem, and that needs to change dramatically in the coming years. And also just the recognition that historically energy assets, uh, particularly polluting energy assets, have been developed in some of the most disadvantaged communities in, in, in the country and in the world. And the goal is to shut those power plants and other facilities down and replace them with with clean energy and serve those communities with low-cost resources that can be built in the communities and uh, involve communities like that. So we're really intent on helping develop this. We have a long way to go. We have a lot of learning to do within the clean energy ecosystem, but I think there's a huge opportunity for improving it and bringing more people of color, underrepresented minorities into this ecosystem for the better of those startups and for the better of the ecosystem as a whole. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, obviously it's one of, uh, one of the things we focus on in this podcast is, is trying to find as many diverse voices as we can, you know, to talk about these things. You know, I think at the end of the day, you know, funds like yours are the, are the way to do that, right? You need to invest in diverse founders and portfolio companies that need to hire diverse folks because, um, it's the only way, right? (laughs) It has to, it has to lead with, uh, with money and with, uh, and with jobs and, uh, making sure that, 
we're building products and services that are for for everyone, you know? Yeah, exactly. Built by everyone and for and for use by everyone. Well, uh, we're about to get into our lightning round here, but uh, before we do that, just any uh, any final thoughts on you know future clean energy? Yeah. Well, so one thing I'll just mention is um, you know, like I said at the outset, that combined goal of financial success and carbon reduction is critical to our strategy. And when we were starting this, one of the things we asked ourselves is, well, how do we measure greenhouse gas emissions for a company that, you know, might not have a product in the market yet? And um, so we started looking around at tools and, and really didn't find anything that was, you know, kind of well-developed. We saw an initiative called Crane, which is uh, developing kind of an industry-wide tool to use to assess carbon emissions reductions. Uh, but it's going to take a while for that to come to fruition. So we actually built our own carbon reduction emissions reporting model. And what we do is when a company comes to us to, uh, to pitch, we ask them to fill in a pretty simple spreadsheet that gives us a sense of what their business plan looks like over the next 30 years. You know, what, what kind of growth rate are you going to see? What kind of domination are you going to have in a particular market? And if you achieve that business plan, what does that mean for carbon reduction? You know, you can just tie one to one. Like if you install 3 million solar panels and replace a certain number of megawatt hours of power generation from, from traditional sources, oil, gas, coal, what does that mean in terms of your reduction? And the companies that have you know, applied for funding love this because they want to know that the answer to that as well. And so what we can do is we can separate the impact from one company against another and look at where are our companies going to have the greatest impact. And again, that aligns very well with our ability, with the ability of our companies to scale and be significant parts of a market. So if you can show really large carbon reduction impact, then you're likely going to be showing a, a pretty large uh, scaling and uh, profitable business model. So that's one thing that, you know, over time we've really worked on uh, developing and, uh, you know, I, I think it still has a ways to go, but it, it's been a very useful tool for us as we diligence companies. Okay. Let's get into our lightning round. These questions are fast and easy, just like the Salesforce customer 360 platform. You can go to salesforce.com slash platform to learn more about building digital transformation for every experience on the number one cloud platform that is Salesforce. Check them out, salesforce.com slash platform. They've been with us since the very beginning of this podcast. We love them dearly. So check them out. Lightning round questions. Dan, are you ready? I'm ready. Number one, what app on your phone is the most fun? Strava. Do you have a favorite book or podcast that you've read or listened to recently that you enjoyed? I like Make Green, Eat Green, I believe it's called. Pull me on that. <laughs> Make Green, Eat Green. I don't know if I know it. I haven't read it. I'll check it out. Do you have a skill or habit that you picked up during Shelter in Place? I have been doing more stretching and yoga than I've ever done in my life. But that's not saying I'm doing a lot. So I, I don't know if I'd call that a skill, but it's something I need to do more 
I've been enticed to do it with my, my kids, which has been great. If you weren't investing in clean energy, what would you be doing? I think I'd be working at a university in some form and um, probably still advising startups because I think one of the things I like best about this is really helping entrepreneurs scale their businesses. What is your best advice for a first-time clean energy founder? Be very conservative in your forecasts. <laughs> that is spoken like a true VC, that is for sure. What about your best advice for a first-time VC? We like to be quite analytical. And I, I think there's times when you can be analytical to a fault. So my advice is at times, trust your instinct, not without analysis, but don't discount your instinct too much. Trust yourself. What question do you never get asked that you wish you were asked more often? I guess the question looking back on my career is, why did you start investing in, or why did you start in the oil and gas industry? Yeah, why did you? <laughs> well, um, I was quite intrigued with the global elements of the oil industry. It was always kind of amazing to me how stuff can move around the world so, so quickly and seamlessly with massive infrastructure all over the place. So hopefully we'll be able to create a clean energy infrastructure like that globally and dismantle oil and gas infrastructure. It can be done. It can be done. Well, Dan, that's it. That's all we got for today. Any, uh, any final thoughts? Anything to plug? I, I would only say that, you know, I hope your listeners, especially ones coming from the tech world, really take a, a look and educate themselves on what's happening in the clean energy community. Because I think there's opportunities for everyone in this space. And we're constantly looking to work with new strategic partners, whether they come from the tech world, the enterprise software world, there's a lot of opportunity. So energy is an open ecosystem and um, we need more really, really smart uh, people to come into it. Awesome. Well, that's it. That's all we got for today. Thanks again for, uh, for joining and, uh, and we'll talk soon. Great. Thanks, Ian. Really enjoyed it. Take care. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce Customer 360 platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experience, empower every employee, and deliver continuous innovation with the customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com slash platform.